Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Activists, The Running Sore on the Body Politic. The date, February 2021. As hard as it is to convince Bernie Sanders that the United States is superior to his old honeymoon haunt, the Soviet Union, or Chavismo, Venezuela, one of the most compelling arguments comes from today's Russia. According to the Washington Post, Upon his return to Russia Sunday, five months after he was left in a coma from a near-fatal poisoning, Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny made it as far as border control. Before Navalny's passport could even be stamped, police officers at Moscow's Alexander S. Pushkin Air International Airport surrounded and detained him. He gave his wife a hug and a kiss goodbye before being led to a private room. The 44-year-old opposition leader's arrest was expected but he chose to fly to Russia anyway. Before his arrival, Russian authorities said he was on a wanted list for allegedly violating the terms of his suspended sentence from a 2014 embezzlement conviction. Novani and the European Court of Human Rights have called that case a political prosecution. You see, in Russia, a nation without the rule of law and due process, you are guilty until ruler Vladimir Putin proves you innocent. There is simply no room for criticism of the tyrant. This is the crucial distinction between a functional, capital-based nation founded on liberty and the one secretly desired by Sanders. The great differentiator of the United States is that we are a constitutional republic where in the most recent election, 159 million Americans took advantage of their franchise and voted, nearly 70% of all eligible voters. The exercise of free speech can also be noted by how many participate in social, cultural, economic, or political movements known as activism. Though fundamental freedoms are under assault by the left today with terms such as microaggressions, critical theory, and limits imposed by large tech companies, there has rarely been so much dialogue around our politics, especially perpetuated by so-called activists. According to the American Press Institute, activists, quote, making up a quarter of all millennials and just under half of the older cohort, age 25 to 34, the activists are further along in life and likely to have established families, careers, and a connection to their community. They form a core target community for news publishers. They are among the most engaged with news, most likely to use it to be informed citizens and to take action, unquote. And... According to Weber Shandwick, in an increasingly complex and turbulent world, nearly 4 in 10 Americans, 38%, report that they have spoken up to support or criticize their employer's actions over a controversial issue that affects society. These are employee activists. Millennials are the generation most likely to be these employee activists at over 48% a rate significantly higher than that of Gen Xers at 33% and Boomers at 27%. In an NBC article entitled A Summer of Digital Protest, How 2020 Became the Summer of Activism, writer Kahan Rosenblatt notes, the advent and rise of the internet have democratized the ability to speak. Professor Stephen Duncombe said, adding that this means it has also given even young people who are sometimes too young to vote, a way to make their voices heard. 
Duncombe states, I am not surprised to see young people being more active because in a lot of ways, young people have a sense of agency online that I certainly didn't have when I was their age. They're used to being heard. And are they ever. Decades-long trends such as smaller families, greater single-parent households, and greater leisure time enable parents to spend vast amounts of time celebrating their children. This means that kids are at the center of American families and not the parents. Heard? These little dickens do not have input. They run the meeting. Now, this participation level is tremendous, right? All of these people need to be heard. Or do they? And is it right? Is activism just one form of First Amendment rights? Or is it also the purview of professional operatives who make a living by injecting toxicity into our politics and culture to preserve their newfound livelihoods? Is it the means to get all of those demanding to be heard millennials ginned up on the move and reaching for their credit cards to make generous donations? Activism consists of efforts to promote, impede, direct, or intervene in social, political, economic, or environmental reform with the desire to make changes in society toward a perceived greater good. But the activities listed show the difference. Forms of activism range from, let's say, mandating building in the community, including writing letters to newspapers. It includes petitioning elected officials, running or contributing to a political campaign, preferential patronage or boycott of businesses, and demonstrative forms of activism like rallies, street marches, strikes, and sit-ins. In this broad definition, there is a vast difference between staging certain activist events like, I don't know, stopping traffic on a bridge going in and out of Manhattan and petitioning or supporting politicians. Two very different things. In the first case, people going about their lives become part of the activist's agenda. In the second case, with politicians, dealing with their constituents is part of their job. The first form of activism is disruption, and we'll talk about that later. The second form of activism is that pure case of, first, of exercising First Amendment rights. But for so many activists today, disruption is the goal and the best way to get clicks, hits, attention, and donations. In the NBC article, one of the protests consisted of leftists reserving tickets to a Trump rally to lower attendance by limiting the number of tickets available for those actually wishing to attend. This activism was lauded on the left for its innovative practice. It would never occur to these activists that in doing so, they were actually denying the rights of their fellow Americans who genuinely wished to attend such a rally, but were fooled into thinking there was no availability. To many activists, their perceptions justify the ends and the means. Perhaps the next logical step would be to publish incorrect voter information, such as sending voters to bogus addresses to lower the total of unfavored politicians and their votes. This action would be activism too. The professional activist class primarily comes from two professions, lawyers and professors, and sometimes both. There is also an infusion of religious figures, but the activist no longer practices law. The activist professor does not grade papers. The religious leader no longer has to figure out how to fix the creaky boiler in the church basement. These activists often move to more fun and more lucrative aspects of their professions, like speaking tours, 
writing op-eds in books, or marching in rallies. We are a republic, not a democracy. Because our current educational system is more concerned about teaching identity politics and celebrating Earth Day, this crucial distinction gets missed. In the former, the people elect leaders who make the decisions. In the latter, the people themselves make the calls. Now, there are three levels of political participation in our republic. The first one, the one imagined by their founders, and in my opinion, the best possible scenario, is a small R republic in which the citizenry elect their leaders and then go on to their daily lives. A person can be an excellent chemical engineer or even a cab driver, but what is their expected expertise in tax policies, immigration reform, or the intricacies of navigating the relationships between the Saudi monarchy and Israel? The answer, very little, and hence the concept of a republic. The next level is the referendum level. It is sort of akin to a real small-d democracy. Referendums are preferred by many politicians, especially in California, because it abrogates responsibilities while they keep their perks. Well, I wanted to spend more money on your issue, but the referendum limited my choice. Or, I wanted to cut that tax, but that would have led to a deficit, which was forbidden under the referendum. As noted above, this assumes that a corporate HR manager or mine worker is up on the details of a complicated governmental choice. Meanwhile, the state senator attends another fundraiser. And if you really want to see a true avoidance of responsibility, just look at Congress today and you will know exactly what I am talking about. The third level is where we are going to our detriment. And this third way, participatory democracy, is being led by the activist. In a January 10th, 2021 piece for the Wall Street Journal entitled Latin Politics Arrive in the U.S., the America's columnist, Mary Anastasio O'Grady writes of this trend, quote, the main worry is that political violence in the U.S. on both the left and the right seems to be on the rise. It won't recede as long as mob action is tolerated as a way to do politics, unquote. O'Grady goes on to define this new trend, quote, traditional American democracy is deliberative democracy, a process by which elected representatives use reason and debate to shape public policies. Participatory democracy tells the aggrieved, never mind the legislature, go to the streets to get what you want. Some activists work on the deliberative side to get a particular person elected, but the increase is on the participatory side for the simple reason that for too many activists, activism is not a project, but a profession. When the clock runs out on a football, or a soccer game, the match is ended. There is the celebration and perhaps the likes of Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan on a dais, holding a trophy and grinning like Cheshire cats. But for the activist, there is no end game. Once they achieve their short-term goals, they simply find new ones. An activist for gay marriage after the Oberfeld decision, which legalized gay marriage, becomes an activist then for trans rights. When there is a nation of 330 million, there will always be enough tiny pockets of ignorance to discern racism, sexism, or some other ism, even if it is a few thousand, or even if it's a few hundred. Thus, the BLM activist or feminist can never lay down their mantle. 
there is always a justification for remaining an activist. They need to find it. And if it does not exist, they need to create it. As I noted in a previous podcast, I too have participated sparingly in what might be called activism. In 2010, I marched in a pro-Scott Walker rally as a counter to those who felt threatened by his necessary curbs to public sector teachers' unions' power. It can be heady stuff. I was surrounded by about 20,000 pro-Walker partisans and in turn facing off against a like number of anti-Walker protesters. It felt real and stimulating and sure beat my day job. I was there on a Saturday. I do not doubt that many activists are sincere about their politics, as I am about mine. But when that passion is coupled with marching and protesting and advocating and speaking, it is more drug than drudgery, and it even becomes religion. According to a Pew Research article published in 2019, the religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip. In Pew Receipt Center telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults described themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share of the population, consisting of people who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26% up from 17% in 2009. I am not sure of the correlation between activists and atheism, but I am convinced that this spiritual gap in many Americans' lives contributes to the view of politicians as quasi-religious figures and politics as a replacement for religion itself. Once a community organizer, an activist, Barack Obama compared himself to Moses by penning an autobiography called The Promised Land, and the positioning of himself as a near-godlike figure was not just Obama's work. As noted in Investors.com, a language arts lesson plan for third, fourth, and fifth graders has been developed around the book Barack Obama, Son of Promise, Child of Hope, in which the author, Nikki Grimes, paints the 44th president as nothing short of a messianic figure. The description of the associated lesson plan by Sharice Bennett boasts that it is officially aligned with the Common Core State Standards Initiative in an attempt to standardize ver- various K-12 curricula across the country. And if Obama's Moses, what does that make the other guy? Jeffrey R. Wilson, a Harvard professor, penned a piece entitled Trump is Satan. Damon Linkler, writing for The Week, penned an article called Trump is a Demonic Force in American Politics. An article in the Pacific Standard noted that New research reports that while 17.2% of Americans believe Trump's election in 2016 was a reflection of God's will, 27.7% believe he is working for the devil. That same percentage replied affirmatively to the statement, the devil is using Donald Trump for his purposes. And all of these opinions came before the events of November 2020 or January 6, 2021. Because activists produce next to really no monetarily valuable service, aside from maybe some book and t-shirt sales, they are almost entirely reliant on writing income, donations, and speaker fees. Just as in church, we pass the collection plate. Actually, my credit card is deducted for the amount every month. And so it is the same with activists. 
Now let's think about Amazon. Amazon gets my dollars for many things. I sometimes shop at Whole Foods. My book, Conservative Historian Collected Works, is sold on Amazon, which takes a cut. I use Amazon for everything from my hard-to-obtain black tea to obscure books. Ever heard of Coxie's Army by Benjamin Alexander? Found it on Amazon. To live my life as it is constituted today, I need the company for good or ill. But I do not do these things out of emotion. I do not get my asparagus or Tavana tea out of rage, anger, or fear. But these emotions are the stock and trade of the activist. Like cable news host and Vox, the activist needs people ginned up, enraged, or quivering in fear of what might happen if one does not tie 25 bucks a month to the organization, to the activist person. Not only is activism infused with a particular religious zeal, but they need to infect you with that same zealousness or they will soon be back to teaching freshman studies, litigating a neighbor's fencing dispute, trying to balance church budgets, or Uber driving. These roles are no longer acceptable for the full-time activist. After the heady brew of speaking tours, they must appear to the activist as some inner circle in Dante's hell. I had written many times about the impact of the economic change and its political effects when media converted from advertising to subscriber base. This alteration meant that a platform had to keep feeding desired content to the subscriber base that it wanted to consume. Broadening the reach beyond a certain mindset risked losing that base. Activism is that principle on steroids. If one wishes to subscribe to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, one can find some deals, but there is a finite price. These platforms want to sell weekday and weekend, digital and paper versions. But if one buys all of these, well, that's pretty much it. Maybe throw on a webinar or two. The key is then to make sure you keep subscribing. But for the activists, there is no limit. Sure, they want the $10, but $50 is better and $100 is better than that. And the best way to not only get the initial donation, but to grow the size is to keep working your emotions. And here are a few examples. Angela Davis, described as a legendary human rights activist, states, quote, the idea of freedom is inspiring, but what does it mean? If you are free in a political sense, but have no food, what's that? The freedom to starve, unquote. Her role is not to advocate for more lenient sentencing for criminals, boring, but literally to save people from starving. By the way, Davis's claim occurs in a nation where the Centers for Disease Control note that 42% of the population are overweight and a disproportionate of these are poor. I especially like this one from Davis too. Quote, if they come for me in the morning, they will come for you in the night. Unquote. That sounds very calming, doesn't it? Really puts me at ease. And how do I stop the they, the infamous they, for coming for me? Why, several speakers bureaus, such as Speak Out, which employs Davis, now contain robust pages for donations. That's it. Spend the money. Give your money to Speak Out, or give it just directly to Davis herself, and that will definitely stop the they for coming for you in the night. Speak Out has donation increments of $25, $50, $100, and an infamous other. In other words, more than 100 Speak Out itself notes of its mission 
Speak Out was fulfilling an incredible need by providing progressive speakers, and there was growth in the roster. From the initial handful to dozens of speakers, scholars, and performing and visual artists, exhibits, and films. Speak Out organized hundreds of lectures and performances each year on campuses, those campuses, nationwide. Speak Out also began to provide workshops, trainings, and educational institutes to strengthen social justice, organizing at high schools, colleges, and universities, and in communities nationwide, as well as organizing local events in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area where we are based. We imagine that Speak Out does not face the same type of campus bans visited upon conservative figures. Just an assumption there. Activism used to be the primary purview of the left, but lately the right has increased their participation as well. According to ABC News, American Airlines is banning the passenger who is kicked off of a flight after refusing to wear a face covering as airlines step up enforcement of mandatory mask requirements. Conservative activist Brandon Straka is the first passenger reported to be banned by a major U.S. airline after they doubled down on their mask policies this week following complaints that they were not being enforced. Now, the jury is out on whether masks truly stop the spread of virus, but it could. We don't know yet. And therefore, this brand of activism is not only disruptive, but actually could be harmful. Ah, but someone might ask, Bell, you write a conservative historian column. You blog, you tweet, you post, you podcast. The difference between myself and many activists is choice. Someone can choose to read my work or listen to this podcast at their pleasure. One of the primary aims of the activists is to disrupt. When BLM protesters stormed a bridge out of Manhattan, they aimed to disrupt the commute of tens of thousands of New Yorkers, black, white, Latino, maybe BLM supporters or Trump megatypes. It did not matter. Of those 10,000s who were stopped on that bridge, it didn't matter whether they liked BLM or, or were against it. It was all disrupted, all the same. The disruption was the thing. In the case of Colin Kaepernick, who chose to be an activist rather than a quarterback, people wished to simply watch a football game. And with those passengers on Straka's plane, people just wanted to get from New York to Dallas. Maybe it was based on business, or maybe they just wanted to get home. The other 121 people aboard that flight had no choice but to become Straka's unwitting players in Straka's own drama. Want to end mask mandates? Lobby your representative to end them. Barring that, elect those who will. But do not strand a hundred of your fellow citizens in your little games. Before Straka became an activist, he was a New York hairstylist. So which would you rather be? A nationally known figure or competing with Tally's Hair Boutique in Hell's Kitchen for patrons? The prevalence of participatory democracy featuring the model of activism, leads to a question about how much activism our republic can withstand. The point of this piece is not to denigrate the freedom and liberty enjoyed by our citizens to express their views or speak truth to power. That ability is one of the many outstanding and awesome things about the United States of America. The actual limitation of speech is now the purview of the left, They only advocate freedom for speech when it is in service to their political aims. 
questioning the veracity of elections, or whether African Americans are better off without the Black Lives Matter movement, and you will quickly see the type of thought enforcement enjoined by the likes of Putin. What the left really means by liberty is the freedom to agree with their opinions. What I disparage is the professional activist who makes their living by discovering new victims, uncovering new grievances, and driving new resentments where none exist previous to their efforts. If someone, once per year, explains that you are a victim, and the rest of the time you believe you have agency, you will dismiss the notion of victimhood out of hand. But if one explains you are a victim seven times per day in your Twitter feed, in your news source, at a football game, or on the TV in the airport, and especially as you are growing up in your classroom, you are going to believe that narrative, whether it is grounded in fact or not. What I advocate is not any censorship of activism, quite the reverse. When a lobbyist working for a solar panel company extols the virtues of green policies, that individual is easily recognized as a corporate shill seeking a governmental rent-seeking arrangement and lining her pockets in the process. The motivations of many activists are the same, and my advocacy is that whenever you see the title, question these individuals' desires and their aims. Is the advocate genuinely concerned about the environment or about obtaining attention and acquiring donations so that they continue in this role, often with financial remuneration above and beyond what should be necessary? Al Sharpton is a civil rights activist, but it is interesting that in his activism, he flies on private charter jets and wears suits whose monetary value could feed a family of four for months. Is the cause civil rights or is it Al Sharpton? And is our social media savvy millennial active for a cause or is it about the virtue signaling that is omnipresent on their Facebook and Twitter feeds? One could support a cause anonymously with the same effect, but why do they then tell family and friends about one's generosity? Why do they have to post all of the wonderful things that they do? Is there real altruism in life? Yes. Is there genuine altruism in activism? Yes. But... It is the thimble of unseen water against the attention of Niagara Falls. My solution, so alarmingly simple, like raising the eligibility of all entitlements to 70, that it will probably never come to pass. The answer is to focus all of that energy and concern on finding and choosing the right politicians and then getting them elected. You know, like in a republic, then after the election, get back to work. Return to producing something of societal value. Return to actually teaching students about how to think critically or actually playing the sport to which one is paid. Or go back to bringing all of those new hairstyles to the beau monde of New York City and leave those poor people to get to Dallas on time. I hope you have enjoyed this latest podcast from the conservative historian. If you are interested in other materials, go to www.conservativehistorian.com. Thank you.